You're listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast, illuminating the unheard stories of today's top leaders in impact with your host, Gino Borges. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode on the Poetry of Impact podcast. I'm excited to welcome James Sternlich, CEO and co-founder of the Peace Department. James comes to us as a part of the partnership between Poetry of Impact and Nexus. James and I are both fellow members of Nexus, a global community of over 6,000 members founded to unite young investors, social entrepreneurs, and philanthropists. In this particular episode, James talks to us about recognizing the harsh inequalities of the world at a very young age through firsthand experiences. James has always had the heart of an activist and shares how and why he's diverged from his family business in real estate. James recognizes his successes in part due to circumstances and he actively uses his circumstances to make the world a better place. So with that, drop in and enjoy the conversation with James Sternlich. Welcome, James. Glad to be here. How you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Lots to discuss today. You are perhaps the most nonlinear interviewees just based on my previous conversations with you. So this will be a lot of fun. Audience, hang on because James is involved in a lot of things, but what I want to do today is to get at the root of all these things he's working on and where James began with his family, upbringing, and so forth. So James, can you fill us in on how you grew up and really the pivotal moment that led you wanting to study environmental science? Yeah, I mean, so my, my fascination with the natural world started very early. Uh, I grew up mostly in Connecticut, um, moved there from Chicago when I was like five or something like, or no, when I was like three years old. Uh, but like my first phrase was, was cute newt. So I was definitely, you know, looking to, <laughs> I, I, I liked my animals. Um, you know, I grew up kind of catching salamanders and, and chasing around snakes and whatever I could find in the backyard. Uh, I got involved with, I started fishing when I was like five years old um, and fell, have a, developed a lifelong passion for marine biology and exploring that life beneath the waves. And so, you know, that was definitely a driving force for me kind of growing up. And by first grade, I was campaigning for the Rainforest Alliance. I didn't really understand the issues, obviously, like combating deforestation, all these things, not something that, you know, someone who's in first grade necessarily gets, but I did have some feeling that I had to save, you know, save the rainforest from the evil lumberjacks. And, you know, so it, it kind of shifted, you know, went on from there. Um, now, during kind of that time uh, in my life, uh, my family, you know, we were living in Greenwich, Connecticut. My family, uh, or my father had started a uh, real estate investment firm called Starwood Capital Group uh, the year I was born in 1991. And so as I was growing up, that was really kind of scaling and, you know, and growing from, you know, a, you know, a new real estate shop in Chicago, 91 with like something like 2 million assets under management to what it is today, which is somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 billion or, so, or 65 billion assets under management. Um, so there's always kind of this dual nature of being connected to the environment, being connected to nature, uh, being involved that the family was involved in hotels, uh, we traveled a lot and we saw a lot of things. Um, and it was definitely a weird experience to kind of grow up being like having your parents tell you, 
hey, don't mention that we fly on a private jet. Don't mention that we stay at these nice hotels, but also having that as part of my, my normal, my experience. Um, an experience that allowed me to see nature around the world and see people around the world. Uh, and so I it really enjoyed my economics classes. I really enjoyed uh, doing research on a lot of different elements of kind of what made society function. And learning, you know, about the classics and mythology and history to, you know, to really going into the new economic or economics and science side of it. It's interesting to start to see a holistic system develop as to like how things worked um, and how everything kind of played together. Because I think one thing that I see in the world just as a general thing is there's this siloed approach. It's not particularly holistic that we tend to take in every element of our lives, a almost hyperlinear approach that doesn't, doesn't uh, address all the factors. So that's something that I grew passionate about looking at. But I think one thing that really struck me was it must have been, I think it was and, and, like, I must have been like 16 or 17. It was around the end of high school. And we were in Cambodia and we had been traveling. Uh, we did Thailand, Cambodia and Vietnam in one trip. And then we were going to, I think, stay in Tahiti or yeah, it was Bora Bora on the way back. So, you know, whirlwind trip through Southeast Asia. And I just remember we were going down to see these uh, like kind of open air aquarium things they have in one of the lakes there. And, you know, we came in, we were staying at the Amman, we were, took shuttle bus down, you know, we went in, in like the, the, the boat, we went and saw the thing, we came back and as we were walking to the car, they said, you know, don't give anything to the children. And you look around, you realize that there are kids who are three years old, five years old, seven years old, eight years old, living in literally cardboard boxes at the side of the road. And that to me definitely was something that stuck with me in saying, wow, I've had the privilege to travel everywhere. I have, you know, I'm going back, like I'm 16 years old, I don't need a five, to stay in a room at a five-star resort, but I'm staying at a five-star resort. But these kids have nothing. And like what, probably what we're spending in a night, you know, or on a day trip is would be enough to make a difference for these kids. So call it Jewish guilt, <laughs> call it, you know, uh, starting to understand my own privilege. But there was this moment for me where I said, hey, this, the fact that I was born one place and someone else wasn't, that I was born into a family, into a situation that my parents, my, my father, particularly with building his business, worked incredibly hard. But, you know, if he'd been born to, to live in a box on the side of the street in, in, uh, in Cambodia, it doesn't really matter how hard he works in that situation. It's unlikely that he's going to achieve the success that he was able to achieve, you know, uh, you know being, uh, being an American. And to look at, you know, my family history where my grandfather, a 13 year old was a man of the house because our family was caught up in Shoah in the, in the Holocaust, um, having to kind of lead the family and, 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 and lead resistance groups and stuff like that uh, to coming to this land of opportunity and having this, you know, and having this really, you know, American dream success story that my father has, it definitely left me in the strange place as I started to go to, went to college and I went, you know, and started to explore later as to where did I want to be? Because it's easy to, it, you know, to kind of toe the company line, so to speak, and to say, okay, well, I have an in somewhere. I've been hearing about, you know, all, you know, I've been hearing the lingo and, you know, the deal flow since I was, you know, old enough, you know, since literally I was born, 
that would have been the easy route to go in. And there's, there's a pressure to go that way because you can learn a lot. You have advantages and you may as well take advantage of it. Um, for me, I kind of said to myself, wow, I see my father and, you know, my mother and, you know, I see how much work has been put into building this, you know, empire, so to speak. However, I think there's something lacking when it comes to fulfillment at, at the end of the day. And if I could grow up with a trust, not that I ever really had access to my trust, but if I could grow up with access to money and I could grow up with access to all these resources, these experiences, traveling to 60 something countries. And I know that the traveling, the shopping, whatever it is, is not going to make me happy. It's not going to fulfill me. It's not going to, it doesn't feel like a mission. <laughs> then, you know, I, it leads to that existential kind of ask of why am I here? And, you know, there's this kind of nihilistic element to some of the world we live in today, which is, you know, I'm going to get what I'm going to get while I'm here. So I may as well have a good time. It's kind of this YOLO uh, mentality, which I think is, it fails to acknowledge the possibilities of the future or, you know, the, to an extent, honor our past. Um, this human experiment has gone on for so long. Uh, and we, we seem to be getting better. We seem to have not gone entirely off the rails yet. Although these last year or so, you know, leaves that up to question. What I do see is that if we think of ourselves as part of this great human experiment and we say, okay, we want this experiment to continue. We want to see, you know, life continue. We want to see for our children and for, and so we don't want to be the generation that destroyed nature that, you know, didn't handle things when we had the chance to handle things and let humanity slip off, slip over the edge. Uh, and so that over the years kind of coalesced for me as this idea that, you know, there is a meaning to life. Uh, that meaning is to keep life going. It's to keep the lights on. It's pretty simple. <laughs> um, but another, another way that I, I would phrase it, I guess, would be that no one wakes up in the morning believing the world is worse off for their being in it. So if we hold that to be true, and I understand that in cases of depression and other mental health things, this can be not the easiest thought to have in the morning, but we all get up and we go do our daily, you know, our, our share of the daily labor on the notion that the world is better off for it, because that's what we have to believe. So quite simply, our purpose is to make the world a better place. That's our purpose every day when we wake up in the morning, it's our, it's our purpose in the macro. And so if that's the case, then I guess my evolution from through philosophy and through my understanding and through my experiences has ended up with this understanding that I'm here to serve essentially. And if I can do that with, with having access to resources and I have, can do that with having access to, you know, some amazing people from around the world who may have better ideas than I have, then we can do something. And that's kind of how things for me have coalesced. I'm curious about those conversations with your family after your experiences in Cambodia and so forth. Walk us through how this has unfolded with you going your own way and yet staying connected with your family. Sure. Um, so, you know, I think the, 
you know, the first, you know, kind of charity thing I worked on when I was little was Rainforest Alliance. I was really into that for a bit. Um, I remember like coming home in tears from a party when I was in fourth grade because no one would listen to me. Uh, although, you know, taking, going to the, going to the arcade for someone's birthday probably wasn't the, the venue, which I should proselytize about, uh, trying to save the rainforest. Um, around my bar mitzvah when I was like 13, I got really involved with the Mariah Mitchell Association, or I think when I was 11, I, I was working on a charter boat. I was doing stuff out there and around 15, 16, I sort of got into electronic music and DJing, which it all converges, I promise. Um, so, you know, fast forward a couple of years, I had just graduated from Dartmouth. Uh, so more than a few years, but, you know, you know graduate, fast forward through graduation and through a friend of mine, um, I was, got introduced to Oceanic Global. Uh, Oceanic was just starting up. A couple of friends of mine were involved in it. And given that I love electronic music and I love the oceans, when they basically said, hey, we're throwing a concert for the oceans in Ibiza, can you help? I was like, yeah, this seems like something I, sh I, I can get involved in, something I can do. And the big push with Oceanic has, from the beginning has been around changing our behaviors as consumers and as businesses uh, through, and you know, our in, in changing that behavior, reducing our impact on the world, like reducing uh, our plastic has been a big thing. And working with Nexus on things like Super, which is helping us reduce uh, plastic in stadiums, having changed, I think we've changed laws in five or six countries at least, if not more. Uh, We've seen plastic straw bill, like the straw, straw ban, go into effect in New York City. Uh, you know, we've definitely had you know a fair share of victories, and that was definitely an introduction for me into kind of more working, more thinking about work at working in nonprofit on a more serious level. Um, and from being involved in Oceanic and from Nexus and from other things that I was involved with. I saw myself, I was lucky to be exposed to uh, thinkers in various fields that I may have not connected with in the past. And really looking at going to a place like the Skull Conference and then going to a blockchain summit at Necker and going, you know, bouncing around to all these various things. I started to see lots and lots of solutions to problems, but it seemed like everyone at these at each of these conferences was talking past each other. Now there might be, you know, one or two people presenting on some sort of meta framework, but the majority of things was, hey, buy my product, hey, buy my solution, hey, donate to my charity, which obviously is gonna be part of the, the pitch, but it didn't seem to, that there, to me that there was in, you know, in any of the conferences that I was really engaging with and any of the discussions I was really engaging with this additional layer saying, okay, now that everyone's laid out all their pieces, how are we putting this together? And I was looking at this from a number of different angles. I saw an opportunity, there was an organization that was doing some amazing work in Afghanistan, uh, as well as doing some work in Cambodia and a few other places. And I saw that they were helping out with land titling and with helping farmers, but they were they, they had built a model that could have been sustainable on its own in that it could have like generated enough cash to cover its operating expenses. And they had, that, that hadn't been fully done. I'd see, I saw 
I mean, I just, I saw so many interesting projects. I started to ask, okay, if we're going to tackle environmental problems and we're going to tackle human problems, if we're, we have all the technologies to tackle pieces of each of these, why don't we have like a, a functional system? Why, do, why isn't there a, set, a kit of parts, you know, a kind of build your own, I don't want to say civilization because it sounds very heavy handed, but something along the lines of, you know, being able to bring in a full kit of parts and, and, and upgrade what, you know, the world that we're looking at. And I started to design this as a functioning closed economy or semi-closed economy. And I was at a, it, it was a Frontiers Finance Forum at, at, the, at the UN. Uh, it was something around UNGA week put on by a group called Fifth Element Group. And one of the speakers there presented some of the frameworks that I needed to do this. Uh, this guy, Daniel Schmachtenberger, uh, who'd been doing, he has a uh, blog called Civilization Emerging. He had, gave this great talk on kind of the more meta side of things. I think it was on the generator functions of existential risk. Essentially, why is our society headed towards greater and greater problems? Uh, and what, ge what generates the, those real threats to our existence? Um, and just looking at it from the rivalrous dynamics versus omniwin dynamics side, looking at it through or looking at the, the global problematique, as the Club of Rome says, I think, in the report. Um, looking at it from the psychosocial and, and uh, behavioral dynamics and combining that with what we know about economics, what we know about uh, sustainable development, what we know about sustainability. Uh, I started to build out what I called Prometheus. Um, Prometheus is kind of the, my, the working title for, I, I suppose it would be my opus, but I'm 20 or I'm 30. I just turned 30. So, uh, <laughs> 30 years old. I'm not sure I want to be saying it's my opus yet, but in any case, um, what it, the idea was that you could have an integrated unit of helping people out of poverty, mentoring them, education, healthcare, all of that done in a sustainable package for both the community that you're lifting up. So you don't have to go fix the problem again afterwards. It's not like you're bringing food somewhere and then uh, taking off, in which case you haven't fixed the food system, obviously. And bringing all this in with technology and new systems, infrastructure in such a way that you hit escape velocity for every community that you want. And, I, and so if we're looking at the problem of global poverty, this would be this almost militaristic seize, clear, hold, build kind of strategy in that you're, we're not gonna try to do everything everywhere at once. It's not gonna be a diffuse strategy. You basically, you line up your, your team at the starting line, you get a job done, the project builds out and you keep moving forward, which I it hasn't really been done before in terms of global developments in part because I think we have this pull to in many directions of like everyone needs our help and then we scatter our resources and nothing actually gets done. We put a lot of resources into it. We, we announce the problems intractable and we go home. Um, hmm. Hold on just a second. I want to pause on this and we can circle back on this, but I want to get back to this original question because I'm sort of curious about how you are navigating your projects and thoughts. I'm trying to get at what those conversations are like with your family when you decided not to go into real estate and into what you currently just shared. I think there's, well, there's a couple different parts to it. Um, I will say my parents have been very supportive of me 
trying things, trying to do things that I wanted to do. Um, I was never really pushed and I was lucky that I had this. Well, there was definitely the, you know, there was some pressure to go kind of work in the family business, so to speak. Um, you know, and, and it's kind of like, you know, dad's a billionaire. I have to be a billionaire too. And, you know, going and giving away money isn't a great way to make money. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, there's that was definitely kind of that sort of thinking of like, Hey, we can do cool stuff. You know, we can, uh, why, why I should go down this path. Um, I think, and it, this isn't just for myself, but my, and I don't want to speak for my siblings, but I'll, I'll take a, 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 this is purely conjecture, but I think part of seeing what my father put into it, which was incredibly admirable, but also seeing what it took out, going into that world took out of them. I think it scattered myself and my siblings a bit to the winds. Um, our, our parents are, have been adamant that they just want us to be happy. Uh, however, when it comes to the conversations as to, you know, what I'm working on or what I'm doing now, those conversations, some of them are great. Uh, some of them are very, very difficult. And I will say it's most difficult when, you know, my, my mind moves very quickly and I, and I, you know, I know I skip from thing to thing, but I'll, I'll have spent, you know, two, three days or, you know, a week sitting with my whiteboards and my notepads and everything, plotting out some grand strategy and believing I have a way to help save, help, help people and save the world, so to speak. And then I go and I speak to, you know, one of my parents and I get clobbered. <laughs> I don't get this. Why would you assume that? And some of it, some of it's constructive. Some of it is, it does come down to uh, what people want to believe. You know, my mom does a lot more work, does a lot of active kind of work in the nonprofit space. My dad's still much more on the corporate side. And so he's a little bit of a tougher nut to crack when it comes to explaining what I'm trying to do. Um, in part, because there's all these, you know, from, from my point where I sit, where I'll just take, you know, and I'm very lucky I'm able to do this. I understand not many are. I'll take, you know, a week of just sitting and reading and, work, and working on trying to understand how different approaches to tackling poverty or tackling uh, different pollution problems or, food, you know, food insecurity, how we might tackle these approaches. And I get some crazy idea in my head, whether it's from a Ted talk or something I read or from Star Trek or who, who, you know, who knows where, and I'll sit and I'll go through and I'll build, I'll do my, I'll do, you know, Fermi estimations, like rough estimations, uh, these things. I, I had the, that moment that every environmentalist has where I started freaking out about the idea of solar panel roadways, um, just to realize that I was just falling into another meme. Uh, but you know, it's, it, it's fun for me to do these things and do these explorations when it comes to practical application of those things in such a way that I will be able to make a living. My parents get very worried, uh, how much money, you know, are they willing to throw at my ideas? If I'm going to change ideas every five minutes, how much money are they, will, are they willing to put into something that is essentially a meta from what my perspective it, it is, makes a lot of sense, but it's a meta-analysis of theory. Um, and, you know, I'm basically trying to synthesize mass amounts of information and data 
build a strategy and go save the world and go do something that's never been done before. It's not really the same pitch as, you know, buying a building. You know, if you're buying a building, the building's there. It's not going to go anywhere. You're investing in a tried and true strategy. This is, I had the idea that I could take the, the best of the best and go find more uh, in, in terms of strategy, to find the best of the best in terms of partners and just send it. And that that would be kind of the way to do this. And I realized there's definitely a lot more work that I need to do, but Opt, you know, we, ha we have received a lot of positive uh, feedback and, you know, we're, we're planning some really cool stuff in that direction, but it, it, will, it is definitely a tough conversation, especially, you know, not to get into the, you know, generation wars or anything along those lines, but growing up, I think with, you know, I, I think for my parents' generation, particularly growing up with the threat of communism or of what communism represented according to McCarthyism and all of that. Uh, growing up, you know, with the shadow of the Cold War, the propaganda around that, the understanding of, of those systems, grow, you know, launch, launching one's career in the 80s, you know, all, all of that, I think, is kind of counter to kind of the softer experience and potentially and other experience of the world. It's not, you know, yes, government or no government. It's well, precise application of policy should lead to good results. And well, you have to precisely shape that policy and it gets very intricate. And, you know, the, the government is, you know, the notion of like the government's taking our money to destroy things or, and, you know, the government's robbing us is one on one side of it of why do I pay so much taxes? On the other side of it is, wow, we have so much, how do we help people? And then, you know, there's this weird conversation that happens on the side of like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to fly. Are, are we going to fly to, you know, fly halfway across the world to go play golf or, you know, or, or, or buy a boat. Um, and it definitely does create an interesting conversation because there's some things you just, that you have to learn very quickly to not say. <laughs> um, I can't, you know, I can't say be grateful for my blessings, but then beat up under my um, other members of my family. We have a good time, which try not to do. Uh the conversations we have that we have in the family group chat, especially both of my siblings are both very intelligent as well. I mean, everyone in my family, I, I, I'll brag here. Everyone in my family is a genius. Um, we get in, we get into it. <laughs> There's more conservative fiscal thinking and uh, strategy coming from my, my, my father's side, my brother and I, well, I consider myself more progressive than left, but we get, we'll get into these political discussions in which are never good as a family. But the, the fact of the matter is the work that I'm doing um, and, you know, the things that my siblings are also interested in are very, very tied to our politics and the way we see that the world should be. And so that's difficult because my father can be apolitical in his work. We can't be apolitical in our work. And so when it comes time to, hey, so what are you working on? I'm arguing, you know, if, if you know, about give a man a fish or teach a man to fish. And my, and my, my response is you have to do both. And my, that makes sense. The education system is broken. And then <laughs> I'm like, well, yeah, that's a problem. And we putter off in our own directions. But it becomes this kind of maelstrom of uh, potential pitfalls of, you know, he has years and years of experience that I don't have. Uh, 
my and you know my my, my mother also has you know years of experience working in, on various things and being their progeny I think I know better and some things I may understand better some things I don't so I, it is a tough conversation though yeah yeah I get that I'm interested in how you and your brother and your parents how each generation can actually inform each other. How can your parents' generation help you with what you are doing and vice versa? And then how can you inform them on what they are doing? So, I mean, some of it is basic kind of, there, there's a basic round of education, I think, for inter, or of like intergenerational education, which I, I joke that it's kind of like training a puppy. Um, part of it has to do with the engagement uh, a various, you know, you, you have to engage different people differently. Uh, you can engage someone who's willing to have a conversation a lot more on, on kind of their terms than if someone's not willing to have a conversation, you're never going to have that conversation. Uh, you can make enough noise that eventually they'll want to have the conversation, but that's another story. Um, you know, for me, I think the biggest thing has been finding people in who, you know, who are in the peer group of, you know, my, my parents and people from all generations I want to educate who are already somewhere on the path that I want to be on um, and, or involved in this stuff in, in, in a substantial way. And so it may be that it's someone my father, you know, knows from the investment community or my mother knows from work that she's done in, in branding and marketing or, or or something along those lines. But if they're, you know, if they've been involved in, you know, ocean conservation, you know, that they can help explain things, so to speak. If they're, if they've been, if they're involved in impact investing, that's definitely useful for me. Um, it, it, we have, I have things where we've set up, uh, we, we were involved with some work with a couple of the DFIs and setting up kind of round tables for, uh, the development finance institutions where traditional investors get to hear what the more public or what this kind of strange world of development finance is doing and hear what returns look like. And they say, oh, okay, wait, this is, could be an alternative thing that I can in engage in. It opens the door of possibility. And, you know, and, you know, it's, you're not, you're not going to want to explain, you know, different games to different people so much as, you know, if you're trying to explain something, someone's playing football, you can use what your football analogies versus, you know, baseball, baseball, baseball tennis players, you know, tennis analogies, whatever it is, you can find the analogy that fits for the person in the, how they can engage with it. And it requires knowing way too much random and oftentimes seemingly trivial information <laughs> to be able to consistently reframe something to meet the needs of the audience. Um, but it's, you know, there's, there's a kind of a psychological or, you know, intellectual dance you have to do around to figure out how is someone going to respond to this thing or what can, what can I get someone's attention with? You know, my father's company has a big energy group. So if I find stuff that's, you know, sustainable or, or renewable energy in emerging markets, it's not necessarily immediately on their radar because they're not necessarily doing emerging markets work. But if I can show them, hey, there's a vehicle behind it that can that you guys can engage with, 
that would allow for better financing terms and would allow, and this, this many people, well, then it's something that fits their profile. They're more willing to look at it. And then the discussion can, can, can expand into other things in the area or other areas, you know, other pieces of that work. Um, it's, but it can also get very, very difficult because, you know, I have, you know, well, I, I believe in split, you know, going across the breadth and depth of like philosophy and, and you know, political ideologies and all these things to look for the best solutions. And occasionally I screw up the conversations royally by quoting Karl Marx or doing something silly like that. Uh, <laughs> uh, trying to argue as to what the role of government should be to someone who's grown up as an ardent capitalist, not really great when you started leaning into uh, Proudhon and Marx and all those things just as like, as, as you know, counterpoint to what you're seeing on a daily basis. Um, and so I get the pitfalls are, you know, avoiding, <laughs> avoid the politics and avoid the ideological pitfalls and really just look, try to look for conversations where you can include someone in something, you know, something in a shared interest, shared activity, something in a shared mindset that, can engage them because I think community engagement is one of the biggest parts of these conversations. Whether it's having it with you know people in a different generation or even having it with within the peer group. Um, one of the things that I loved about getting involved with Oceanic is when we did our 4,500 odd person festival for the oceans in Ibiza in 2017. You know you had people who were coming out because they wanted to hear Solomon play and tear it up. Uh, you know you had people who were coming out to do to like check out the arts and crafts and the amazing production uh, 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 pieces that we'd put together for the event. Some people were just coming to, you know, to hear some, some people speak. And so having, you know, this, multi, this myriad of a bunch of these activities people could do, but all around this common theme brought, you know, created this interaction that was really important for everyone to be, for people to be able to go home and then say, I'm going to do this. And I know my friends are doing it too. I'm going to make a change. My friends are going to do it with me. Um, that's a huge, huge part of it because no one wants to feel like an outlier. Uh, and no one wants to feel like they're, you know, do it, get making a big sacrifice, but somehow when we all do something, you know, positive together, it becomes social activity and somehow the things that are hard don't seem so hard anymore. On our way out of this conversation, I want to get a feeling a thumbnail sketch, that is, of the Peace Department project. How would you describe it if we were just walking down the street together having this conversation? How would you really break it down? So I see Peace Department as a global impact coordinator. Uh, our job isn't to be on the ground everywhere all the time working on a million things. Our job is to essentially write plays and then then bring in the right people to engage in those plays. So when it comes to one of the projects that we're looking at currently, uh, which is targeted for Central America, we're looking at a, groups that do work with graduation approach uh, and groups that work with uh, agricultural cooperatives. We're looking at sustainable energy systems uh, we're looking at waste management systems. We're looking at the financing that's needed, the infrastructure that's needed. And we're basically saying, okay, there's organizations that we're going to partner with and who we're in talks with. 
who are going to execute on their various pieces of the puzzle. Whereas, and I, I liken a lot of the work that we do to combat applications in part because I love war history. Um, but if you're going to launch, you know, any sort of operation, you know, if you're looking at this from the perspective of a military unit, you want your tanks, your planes, your troops all moving together. You want the boats getting you to the beaches. You know, if the, so the way that I look at this becomes, okay, if we're said, you know, if we talk about, you know, the Normandy landings, philanthropy helps us establish our beachhead. That, then you're just standing up those defenses. You're, build, you're building that first layer. That doesn't mean that you have, you know, factories and, and all the stuff you need for production war material there yet, but you're going to secure the perimeter, you're going to secure the area. Then when, as you invest in building the, that, those, that beachhead and building up your, your base there, you're going to have the airships come in, you're going to have all these pieces that come into this that allow for you to push forward well. And so the idea is this kind of seize, clear, hold, build model where you know, we go get someone who's really good at housing, someone who's really good at agriculture, someone who's really good at water, really good at sanitation, you know, bring it all together in, in, a, in one place. You focus on doing well within your, your, so, your walled garden, so to speak. And then you branch out uh, from there. So you, the idea would be you, know, you establish a node and then it grows and then it grows and then it grows. So each phase can include a new community down the road can link these things up and you're gonna graduate people from extreme poverty into a livelihood they can sustain. Investment in access to financing is gonna create, excuse me, gonna create opportunities. And from there, you know, access to education, access to finance, access to these opportunities will spill over into helping the next communities and into people being able to seek out the opportunities that existed for them before, but they needed a little more resources to have. And so it's give a man to fish, or sorry, give a man a fish while you teach him to fish, and then 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 get him a fishing rod. It's got kind of that continuum all the way through. Versus, you know, I'm going to give a man a fish and then wonder, you know, what why he's not out of poverty yet. Like it just that that doesn't work. <laughs> We've been doing that for too long. It's I hate to say it, but it's like throwing money into a black hole on some level when we just do the livelihood support and we don't do anything else. And if you don't fix the water problem, if you don't fix the health problem, if you don't do all the pieces of the puzzle, there's still going to be something holding those holding people back. And, you know, they're not going to be able to, you know, grow out of this fertile soil that you're creating for them, so to speak. So, you know, the, the idea is to do these things together. And if you're looking at a problem like global climate change in this same context, well, the people in the least developed countries are going to be those who suffer most from it. They also have the greatest opportunity to benefit from things like carbon credits and from sustainable agricultural practices and from reforestation in places where there's been deforestation. So we, there's all these different modalities that we can build in together to say, okay, we're gonna pay people to protect their environment and give them a sustainable livelihood through that. Like that's a beautiful thing if we can pull it off. And I firmly believe from the work that we've done from the research that we've done that that's what, we, that's what we're here to do and that it can be done. James, I want to thank you for sharing your story. Tell us where people can learn more about you. Sure. Um, so you can always follow me on Instagram. My uh, at is J-K Sternlicht, S-T-E-R-N-L-I-C-H-T. Uh, and then you can check out our website for Peace Department, uh, peacedepartment.global, or for our ocean conservation stuff, oceanic.global. Awesome. Thank you so much. 
Hey everyone, thanks again for listening in to today's conversation on the poetry of impact. The podcast exists for and because of listeners like you. Be sure to subscribe to the Poetry of Impact podcast on your favorite podcast player. And if you have time, leave us a review. Thanks again and goodbye for now. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast. For show notes and additional resources, visit poetryofimpact.com.